And let's turn to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3 from 12 all the way to 19. We'll finish Hebrews 3 today. I want to remind you this is God's holy, infallible, inerrant word. Let's read it together. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for four years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come to your word humbly, knowing that we have no power and ability within ourselves to even hear your word and understand it apart from your work in and through us. So we pray, Lord, that your spirit would come, illumine our minds and understanding and help us to apply the word to our hearts, that it would soften our evil and unbelieving hearts and lead to repentance, to faith, to hope, and to perseverance. And we pray, God, that you would do that work among us and through us, and that, Lord, you would speak a far better sermon than these people will hear. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In a few months, I will complete my 11th year of teaching. I know, it's a big deal, right? Um, Some of you have been teaching for like three times that, so... It it seems like a big deal to me. 11 years has been a while, especially teaching high school. Um, And it feels like I'm getting to be an old teacher, especially because of some of my students are coming back now with their kids and introducing themselves. And and my newest neighbor just moved in, and she's one of my former students, moved in with her husband. It wouldn't be that awkward, except she keeps calling me Mr. Horner, so it feels a little weird. Um, But I've, I've been so blessed with my time as a teacher. So thankful for my time in, in my teaching ministry and my youth ministry and thankful to, to just be a part of the work that God is doing in these students and even so many among you. But as I've been a part of that ministry, as I've struggled to teach and to, teach and to shepherd these kids, one of the greatest tragedies in my teaching ministry that I've ever experienced is when I see a student that I, I feel like is walking with the Lord Walk away from the church. It just is gut-wrenching. It makes my heart ache. It's one of the greatest 
difficulties I've experienced. Students that I know I've prayed for, I've struggled with, I've served with, I even grew with. And to make it even harder, some of them have such amazing starts. They come from wonderful families who taught them the word, great churches who preached the gospel, great friends and great influences, but for some reason they walk out in the world maybe never to cross the doors in the church again. And I'm sure I'm not alone in this. I'd be willing to bet that many of us, maybe even most of us, know people like this in our life that have walked away from the church. And I'm sure even as I say that, people come to your mind. This is not theoretical for most of us. Moments of joy and happiness, maybe even moments of glory, when you see people grow in their faith, but then they walk away. Maybe it was a parent or or a child that you've raised, that you've taught the truth, or a mentor or a friend, maybe even the person that led you to Christ, taught you the gospel, decided to abandon that gospel for themselves. And even if you've never experienced that firsthand, every single one of us has heard about church leaders falling away, haven't we? We hear about more every single day. People that you would think are solid, people that you would think would never fail, that, that God used powerfully, but then make shipwreck of faith. And we're just left scratching our heads wondering what in the world is going on. How could this go so wrong? And that's exactly what the audience of the book of Hebrews would be going through when this book was written. If you remember, this book was written to primarily Jewish Christians in the sense that they walked away from the Jewish religion, from the Jewish customs, the Jewish temple, to serve Christ, to worship Christ. And in doing that, they probably walked away from friends and family. And they were doing really well for a long time, but persecution increased from Rome and from the Jews. It got harder to walk with Jesus, and they really started to think if it was really worth it. They grew weary of fighting, grew weary of the struggle, and many of them probably walked back to Judaism, leaving the rest of the church wondering, what in the world do we do with this? And the writer of the book of Hebrews is so gracious because he writes this letter, or better yet, even sermon, to help us understand and to deal with apostasy, walking away from the church. It's not the only reason he wrote the letter for, but it is a great resource for that. And you know what? It's not just a resource. I don't want you to get the idea that this is just objective or theoretical or just this intellectual discussion of apostasy. The book, this writer of the Hebrews doesn't let us go there. He takes these profound truths and rocks them right into our house, right up to our dinner table and puts them right in front of us and says, what are you going to do with this? Because this could be you. You think you, can, you won't fall away? You think that this can't happen to you? This is not some religious game. Don't abandon Christ. He is our only hope. That's been his refrain for three chapters and it will continue to be. Jesus Christ is our only hope because he's greater than the prophets. He's greater than the angels. He's even greater than the great servant Moses. And not only that, he is the son of God, the creator of all things, the sustainer of all life. He's the one who took on flesh, took on our very nature to redeem mankind. He's the final and ultimate prophet because he speaks the word of God as God. And as we learned just a few weeks ago, he is the builder 
and the provider and the overseer for God's house, God's church. To abandon him is insanity. And if you abandon Christ, you have no hope. And as we come to the end of chapter 3, the writer is going to help us be encouraged and continue to warn us by answering one specific question. One question that's one of the most important questions we could ever ask ourselves. And that's this. How do we persevere? How do we persevere? How do we continue to fix our minds on Christ? How do we hold fast to the end? How do we not neglect this great salvation that we've seen? How do we persevere? And as we read this passage, I think the answer might surprise you. I know it certainly did for me in some ways this week. So as we answer that question in this passage, I want to split that answer up into three parts. Okay, the answers will be like this. It'll be the enemy of perseverance. That's the first thing we're going to think about. What's the enemy of perseverance? What do we need to look out for? Play defense on, right? What's the enemy of perseverance? And then two, what's the means of perseverance? How do we fight for perseverance? What do we do? How do we play offense? Sorry, I got final, final four on my uh, mind this week. So defense, offense, if you don't like sports, then ignore that analogy completely, okay? Um, and then lastly, the third one is the hope of perseverance. The hope, what fuels our perseverance completely. So the enemy of perseverance, the means of perseverance, and the hope of perseverance. And as we look at those things, we will understand better, I hope, how to persevere how to persevere. So let's look at verse 12 as we see the enemy of perseverance. Verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Now please notice, first off, off, who is being addressed? It's brothers, which is brothers and sisters. But notice this is not atheists. This is not these godless pagans. These are professing Christians. This is the church. This is the family of God. Now, it doesn't mean that they're all saved. The Bible acknowledges that there will be false professors, false brothers, even Jesus himself. Remember what he said? There will be many that say, Lord, Lord. Didn't I do all these things? And then what does Jesus say? Depart from me. I never knew you. So it doesn't mean that these people are saved. We're not looking at the elect here or the universal church in that sense, but the local church. It's an an address of charity that these are all brothers. But you need to know that these are probably people that have been baptized, walking with the Lord, even walked away from their Jewish customs to follow Jesus, made great sacrifices to follow Jesus. That's who he's addressing here. And listen listen to the strong warning he gives these brothers. Take care. I don't know that doesn't sound strong to us. Probably think of take care, bye-bye. That's how we usually think of take care. It's not what it means. The, the word here is more hostile than that. It's watch out. Be on guard. Be alert. It's, it's the language of war for a soldier or a watchman. And it's basic. It's a continuous command. It's basically this idea that be on alert all the time. There's never going to be a safe zone. You're never going to be off duty. Make this alertness, this guardness a habit in your life. He's serious about this. Be on alert. The enemy could strike at any time. 
with this kind of buildup, the enemy must be huge, right? It's got to be Satan and his demons or, or these really powerful, scary people. I know that the Jews were really hostile, and so were the Romans to the church. So maybe he's saying, look out, there's these crazy enemies around. But look at this enemy. Verse 12 again. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Did you catch the enemy? This fierce, huge enemy is you. It's me. More specifically, it's our evil, unbelieving hearts. It's our evil, unbelieving hearts is going to be the biggest enemy in the battle of perseverance. It's you. It's the same evil, unbelieving heart that was in the Garden of Eden that caused Adam and Eve to doubt God. To say, no, I'm not going to listen to him. I'm not going to believe his word. I'm going to go provide for myself. The same evil, unbelieving heart in Jeremiah says, deceitful above all things and desperately sick. And the same evil, unbelieving heart that suppresses the truth in unrighteousness so that we can worship the creation rather than the creator. And it's the same evil, unbelieving heart that's in all of us, not just some of us. In all of us, because we live in a fallen world. And look how dangerous this heart is. Verse 12. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, and what does it do? Leading you to fall away from the living God. Brothers and sisters, this, this is a real danger. This is a real evil that we have. We have this enemy within, this cancer of the soul, this evil, unbelieving heart of flesh that battles our spirit, that constantly wages war against God Almighty. How foolish of an idea to even do that. Notice it's not even just God Almighty. It's the living God. Not not to say that He's just living, He's just alive. He is, but He's also the source of life. He's the one who gives life. Therefore, to walk away from Him is to walk away from life. To choose death. Who would ever think of such a thing? Why would we let our hearts do that? And just so we don't underestimate this enemy. We don't think that we're above this, that we don't have to worry about this. The writer of the book of Hebrews illustrates what he's talking about. He shows the danger of an unbelieving heart. Skip down to verse 16. He illustrates this unbelieving heart with the same illustration he's been using for a couple weeks. The nation of Israel in the desert in the wilderness. And he does it a little differently. He doesn't quote a psalm like he did last time, Psalm 95 a couple weeks ago. He actually uses this old style of argument in the ancient world. It's not just old, it's still used in a lot of ways, but it's basically a series of rhetorical questions that lead to this unavoidable conclusion. Usually the answers are fairly easy, but they reveal his logic. They reveal his argument and they lead somewhere. And we've seen this before in the scriptures. Paul uses this in Romans 10, you might remember, when he's trying to tell people someone has to be sent if they're going to be saved. And Paul says this in Romans 10, How then can they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear unless someone preaches? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? And the conclusion is, well, they need to be sent and preach so they can believe. See the logic there? Well, the writer of the book of Hebrews is going to do the same thing. But his point is that the evil, 
unbelieving heart will destroy us. Look at what an evil, unbelieving heart has done in Israel. And let's look at verse 16 to see this. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? Well, this is easy to answer, isn't it? That's, that's the Jews. That's Israel. That's God's people. In Exodus 7, you know the story, right? We've all heard the story many times where they were led out of Egypt, led out of slavery. They were brought into the desert by these miraculous events, these plagues and the parting of the Red Sea. God did an incredible work. They were led out by Moses, who was literally the most messianic figure that Israel had. Had the best start that you could possibly have for the people of God. And look what it says. Yet they rebelled. It just doesn't make sense. They rebelled. Verse 17 explains it even more. And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? Now what sin is he talking about? Because if you, if you read Exodus, there's a lot of sin in there. <laughs> right? So what are we talking about? Well, turn to Numbers 14. Jason read this a couple weeks ago. I'm going to read a verse briefly. Keep your finger in Hebrews 3. But I want to review this since it's been a little while. Let me set this up a little. Numbers 14, you might remember, this is the event at Kadesh Barnea. I believe that's how you say it. It's this infamous event in Israel's history that had massive eternal consequences. And if you remember, when they got out of the promised land, or excuse me, got out of Egypt, headed to the promised land, they got right up to the border, ready to go in, and what did Moses do? He gathered the tribes, he gathered leaders of each of the tribe, these 12 men, and sent them in on on a scouting trip. These men were to gather facts and to see what the land is like, and they did this for 40 days. That's important there. 40 days. And when they did this, they came back, and every single one of them said the same thing. The land is incredible. You won't believe it. It's beautiful. It's amazing. It's just what God said. It's flowing with milk and honey. They all agreed in that. But then 10 out of the 12 men, gave an evil report. It actually says evil report in um, Numbers 14. An evil, bad report. And what did they say? The land's beautiful, but we can't take it. Do you know there are people living there? They're really big. We can't take it. We can't do this. There's no way that we can conquer this. And Joshua and Caleb speak up. These men of God say, are you crazy? Look where we just came from. God wiped out the entire Egyptian army. You think we can't do this? God is with us. Let's do this. Let's go. And you would think they would say, oh, great. That's, well, I don't know what we were thinking. They don't. They harden their hearts in unbelief. And they even try to stone Caleb and Joshua and Moses and Aaron. And they probably would have had God not intervened. And that's what we see in Numbers 14, verse 11. Numbers 14, listen to what God says about their sin. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me? In spite of all the signs that I've done among them, I will strike them with pestilence and disinherit them. Now skip down to verse 29. This is where he actually shows what he will do 
in judgment. Verse 29. Your bodies shall fall in the wilderness. In all your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell. And that's exactly what God did. The people of God wandered the desert for 40 years. One year for each day of the scouting trip. 40 years. And everybody 20 and above died off. Why 20? Because that was the age to fight. Those were the ones that disbelieved. And 600,000 of 1.5 million died off in 40 years. That's an average of 90 people per day. I don't even know if we can think about how tragic of a reminder that would be of the seriousness of our sin. For 40 years they went through this. And listen to what verse 18 says. Back in Hebrews 3. Because of this rebellion, because of this sin, verse 18, and to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who were disobedient. Please notice the connection here. Their unbelief led to disobedience. They're connected. Just like faith is connected to obedience, right? They're always connected. Their unbelief led to this. And 19, verse 19, helps us understand this connection. So we see that they were unable to enter. Why? Because of disobedience? No, because of unbelief. Unbelief was their fatal fatal error. It was unbelief that caused them to doubt the God that freed them from slavery. It was unbelief that caused them to turn on their leaders and try to stone them. And it was unbelief that led to the death of these thousands of people in the desert and to the judgment of God. You see, unbelief is the root of apostasy. It's the root of people walking away from God. Our sinful, unbelieving heart is our greatest enemy. And if we ever walk away from the Lord, it starts there. It starts at our sinful, unbelieving heart. Oh, I wonder if we really believe that. Do we really think that we're that vulnerable? That fragile? That it's even possible for us to do what Israel did? Especially in our day when everyone, everyone is saying, just follow your heart. Right? Isn't that the Disney motto? Just follow your heart. Let your conscience be your guide. I hear all the time, trust your gut, follow your instincts, um, go with what feels right. Look, Israel followed their heart, and it led them away from the living God. It led them to death. And the desert near Israel is filled with graves of people that were true to themselves. This evil, unbelieving heart is a great enemy. Or maybe you think you're the exception. You read this, you think about others that have fallen away, and you think, that's that's not going to be me. There's no way. I don't struggle with that sin. I'm not tempted like that. I know better. I would never risk my life that way, my family, my job. There's no way I would ever go down that path. Or maybe you're more theologically grounded in your pride. You think, well, I'm eternally secure. Once saved, always saved, right? I've been baptized. I've served and taught in the church. 
I know my Bible. I'm reformed. I believe in a sovereign God. Surely I'm not going to fall away. Please hear this. No matter how strong we think we are, we have a deadly enemy within. And no amount of giftedness, passion, or religious experience immunizes us from an evil, unbelieving heart. So what do we do? Now we know this great enemy. Now we know how serious of a battle this is. We need God's means of perseverance, don't we? And that's what we find in verse 13. God's means of perseverance. And that this enemy is so big and so powerful and so scary, the means of perseverance must be impressive, right? Must be huge. It must be incredible because God's provided this as the tool to fight this evil and unbelieving heart. Let's look what it is. Verse 13. But exhort or encourage one another. I don't know if you hear, hear that. I think, is that it? Is that really God's big solution? It's not even read your Bibles or, or go to school, get educated, or pray, serve, or, or learn more. No, the church is God's solution. The church, this, this ragtag group of people, this motley crew, this people that would never be caught together in the normal world if it wasn't for their union with Christ. This people that's in all different stages of life and ages and different backgrounds and different ways of seeing the world. This group of people encouraging each other, helping each other is going to battle an evil, unbelieving heart? Yes. Yes. It's exactly what God has designed. Let me break some news to you, and it shouldn't come as a surprise that the rest of Scripture is true. You will not get to heaven by yourself. You will not get to heaven by yourself. You will not win the battle of unbelief by yourself. Because when God saves you through Christ, He unites you to His Son and to the church. Now don't get me wrong. I don't think that the church is what saves you. That your work in the church or your, your sharpening each other, encouraging each other, has anything to do with the salvation that has been accomplished in Christ. Jesus did it all. It's done. But the church... This, this arena, this stage where God's glory gets worked out in us. Where iron sharpens iron and we become more Christ-like. All fueled by the work of Christ. All fueled by the grace of God. But it has means. And it's in the church, it's in this people group that we sharpen each other and grow and persevere together. I have news for you. Perseverance is a community project. Perseverance is a community project. It has togetherness and each otherness involved in it. We better make sure we get this right. So let's read 13 again. But exhort or encourage one another. Now this is a continuous command. And the idea here is to encourage continually. To make it a habit of encouragement. To constantly be encouraging and exhorting one another. And please when I say that, don't think that means be nice. It's not. Encouragement in our world is always minimized to just be nice. Just tell me what I want to hear. It's not what it means. That includes exhortation. That includes coming alongside a brother and sister and wrestling with sin together. Joining them in the suffering and walking with them in the suffering. That mutual encouragement and exhortation is what they're talking about here. And I know what you're thinking. This takes so much time. So much effort. 
but it shows us that we not only need other people, they need us. We need each other to grow in grace. I know that sounds demanding, but we have no clue how much. <laughs> Look at verse 13 again. But exhort one another, how much? Every day. Not just Sundays or grace group. Uh, he probably got that wrong. Every day, as long as it is called today. Nope. Every day. That's hard work. That takes planning. That takes sacrifice and patience. Wisdom takes discipline and a whole lot of grace and effort. God-driven, grace-empowered effort to love one another like this. And it's so hard in our distracted world, isn't it? Where we have a tweet or a text or something buzzing in our pocket saying that we don't have to be here with this person. We can go somewhere else. But it's in that moment where relationships are growing and we're mutually encouraging one another. And it's anything but convenient. And that's typically how we like to love, isn't it? We love to love and encourage when it fits into our schedule. When we have free time, when it doesn't interrupt family time or work or soccer practice. When our houses are clean or when we have money to spare. Or maybe, maybe we're just waiting until it's not awkward. Maybe that's it. We're waiting for the perfect set of circumstances, the perfect timing, the perfect situation. And I have news for you, that will never come. Perfect will always be the enemy of good. So we need to get over ourselves, our imperfections, our idols. And we need to encourage each other. It's not just recommended, it's required. We're called to this. We're charged with this. And I have news for you, we'll always be busy. There will always be more to do. But we only have today. We only have today. We can't afford to miss this. Yes, it's difficult. Yes, it's challenging. It's anything but convenient. But that's not the way that Jesus loved us. Jesus didn't love us when it was convenient. He loved us to death. And that's what we're called to do too. Walk in his footsteps. We have to take this seriously. It's the means of grace that God has given us to grow so that we don't what? Look at verse 13 at the end. That none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Well, there it is, isn't it? That's the real reason why we need each other. Is because left to ourselves, we think we're doing pretty good. We are pretty good at lying to ourselves, thinking that we can meet our needs our own way. We can do what we want when we want, and we don't need God or anyone else. Left to ourselves, that's exactly where our, our evil, unbelieving heart will lead to deception. And we can actually start to believe that in all things, even towards God, I'm doing just fine when I'm hardening my heart towards God and towards each other. We all have blind spots, and we need each other's help to find them, to encourage us to walk out of them. I've had so many blind spots in my life that I'm thankful that brothers and sisters have called me out on. There's one particular one in, in college that I want to share with you that it, it's hard to even share because it's so ridiculous. But I remember in college, I was growing so much. I was at Biola, and I was, I was in the Word all the time, studying as a Bible major, had friends that were encouraging me and growing and strengthening. I was really doing a lot. I wasn't married. I just had all this time to study God's Word. I remember thinking to myself, I hope I never said this out loud, but I remember thinking, you know what? I'm, 
I'm not sure how much sanctification is really left. <laughs> yeah, I know. Ridiculous, right? Then I got married and uh, had kids and realized how blind and foolish I was. And what I needed at that moment was someone to come alongside me who had been sinning a lot longer than me and say, you know what, you have no clue what you're dealing with. You're just getting started. I needed a brother or a sister to encourage me to continue the faith. And that's what happened. I was able to persevere because I invested into the church. And God graciously used them to wake me up from my stupidity. And we need the same thing each and every day. Brothers and sisters willing to sacrifice and serve one another and labor to serve and encourage one another together. That's how we fight this great enemy. And so we've seen the the enemy of perseverance, the evil, unbelieving heart. We know the means of perseverance is the church encouraging one another, strengthening each other every single day. But what's the hope of perseverance? What is behind all of our encouragement? What is behind our battle with evil, unbelieving hearts? What's the key, this driving force behind all of it? Well, that comes in verse 14. The hope of perseverance is this. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. I know when you read that, you're probably thinking, that doesn't sound very hopeful. Maybe you got the wrong verse. I know it doesn't sound that way. It might even sound a little heretical to some of you. You read that and think, is he teaching works righteousness? Is he teaching that we can lose our salvation? It kind of sounds like you're only in Christ if you persevere. There's been a lot of these ifs throughout Hebrews, right? You notice that? If you persevere, as if perseverance is going to continue and then salvation is your great reward. When you cross the finish line, then you get united to Christ. Is that what he's talking about? Of course not. We can go all over the Bible to, to say that it's not true. But we just need to dig a little deeper here to figure that out. We read verse 14 again with me. Notice what it does not say. It does not say, for we will be able to, or we will be qualified to share in Christ, if indeed we hold fast our original confidence to the end. He's not saying that we will get this in the future. No, that's, that's not what he's talking about. It's not the future tense. It's actually a past tense verb. The idea is that we have come to share in Christ. This is a reality that's already been accomplished. It's already happened. Sure, it has implications for the rest of your life, but it's completed in Christ. This is what the verse actually teaches. Holding our original confidence to the end is the evidence, the fruit, the demonstration that we've been united to Christ in the first place. It's not the basis. Because Jesus has persevered for us. He's completed everything that we needed to do. He's obeyed God 100%, went to the cross, laid down his life for us. And in that finished work where he rose from the dead and ascended to heaven, his completed work is applied to us, and we are persevering through him. It's done. And conversely, it's also true, if we don't hold fast our original confidence to the end, it's not that we lose our salvation, that we lose union with Christ, or we failed to earn it. It's evidence that we were never united to Christ in the first place. It's not perseverance 
that leads to union with Christ, it's union with Christ that leads to perseverance. And now if you read that verse that way, there's great hope. It's a guarantee of perseverance. But it's also a warning. He says, if you are in Christ, you will persevere. There's the promise. If you're not persevering, you may not be in Christ. This kind of promise um, warning is all over Scripture. 2 Corinthians says, test yourself to see if you are in the faith. Not to be in the faith. Test yourself to see if you're there. If this is your standing. 2 Peter says, be diligent to confirm your election and your calling. Not to earn your election and calling. Philippians 1, we've read this one a lot. And I'm sure of this. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Jesus is just getting started and he will make sure that you get home safe and sound looking just like him. Even Jesus himself taught this. Remember in John 10 when he's talking about him being the great shepherd, he says this, no one will be able to pluck the sheep out of my hand. You remember what he says later? Who are the sheep? My sheep hear my voice and follow me. What's the implication there? If you're not following, you're not sheep. Perseverance is not the grounds of salvation, but the evidence for it. I love how Alistair Begg puts this. I'm going to read him for just a second here. The New Testament test of faith is continuance, not giftedness, not passion. The question is not one of retention of salvation based on your persistence of faith but of the possession of salvation as evidenced by the continuation of faith. The ground of our salvation is the finished work of Christ, but the evidence of our salvation is the continuance in faith. And so what do we do? Do we just sit back and ride this perseverance train? Just let God, let go and let God, right? You've heard that? The writer of the Hebrews won't let us do that. Look at verse 15. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. He comes right back to the issue, doesn't he? Yes, Christ's work is complete. But don't think you're above Israel. Learn from Israel. There's still time to repent. You notice that word today shows up a couple times, right? Pulled out of Psalm 95. And it does literally mean today, which is how I talked about it when I said encourage one another every day as long as it is called today. But today also means something else in Scripture. Today is the day of salvation. It's the day of the Lord. It represents this period of time where God speaks and calls the world to repentance. And Scripture is constantly reminding us and warning to us that today will not last forever. The offer of God's grace has an expiration date, and God will not be mocked. He will be vindicated. Israel presumed on that grace, and judgment came. They hardened their heart at Kadesh Barnea, and God judged them for it. Well, today we've heard God's voice, loud and clear through the Scriptures. Today may be our Kadesh Barnea. We have no clue how long we have. Or when God will settle all accounts and judge righteously forever. So what are you going to do about it? Will you continue in hardening your heart 
giving in to deception, to unbelief, to procrastination. The devil's favorite word is, let's just do it tomorrow. Or will you repent and persevere? Will you trust and obey? can't be any simpler. It's, it's exactly what perseverance is. It's a long obedience in the same direction. It's progress, not perfection. It's not getting it right 24-7, 365 days of the year. It's continuing to trust in the one who got it right for you. And when you get knocked down, you get right back up time and time again, trusting in the same gospel that saved you. And then we don't do this in our own power. It's all fueled by grace from start to finish. Philippians 2. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Colossians. Him, Christ, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And listen to this. For this I toil, I struggle, Struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. That's how we persevere. Day by day, trusting in future grace that God will provide everything we need to battle an unbelieving heart and to exhort one another in Christ. And we hold out that gospel as long as it is called today. And God will be faithful to use us and grow us in grace as we do that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a humbling passage. And we acknowledge before you that we are not sufficient for these things. We acknowledge that perseverance is not in and of our own power. And we cannot do this on our own. But we also acknowledge that Christ is more than sufficient for these things. And Christ not only lived and died for us, he continues to help us persevere. He continues to persevere by empowering us in grace and using your spirit to help us walk with you. Father, help us to trust you. Help us to have great faith in the midst of an unbelieving world. Help us to battle the unbelief together and empower us to do that as we worship you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.